Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cole. And on this episode, as we celebrate 50 years of hip-hop, we have... A legend. I like to call him a young legend because he's been around for so long and, and you never aged. Um, producer, <laughs> artist, label exec, Mr. Eddie F. What's going on, brother? How you doing, man? I'm good, man. How are you? Hey, man, I, I can't complain. It's really good to see you. And, you know, let's just jump right into it. What I always, you know, kind of admired about you was like you were kind of learning on the job. And I said yes. the same thing to, since to Pete Rock. Like, I don't know what's in the water in Mount Vernon, New York, but there was something happening in the water as hip hop was developing in the Bronx and spread to all of the other boroughs. You and your friends were making music in Mount Vernon and then would unleash uh, all this great music on the world uh, in the mid 80s and, you know, continue to make great music. But what was happening when you guys were growing up in Mount Vernon? Where, where was this energy coming from? As you mentioned, right next to the Bronx, like my house was literally, you know, five minutes walking from the Bronx and from Dyer Avenue and Eden, Eden Wall Projects, where DST is from. And a lot of other um, legends, basically Bronx River and all that was like right nearby. So when you hear about that, a lot of times Westchester doesn't get, you know, the credit because we're not technically, the, you know, the boroughs. But when hip hop started, I was like five. We had just moved to Mount Vernon. But um, I basically grew up on hip hop. And an interesting story that that Red Alert told me that I wasn't aware of. One of the crews in Mount Vernon, the Collins Brothers, Red Alert's half-brother was in that crew and up the street from my house, like literally if you walk on my porch where, where I grew up, my mom's house, you could see there was a park called Brush Park. And I would hear music, you know, when people would do block parties would be coming out of that park. And um, in that park was Bambada, Jazzy J, Red Alert, because Red's half-brother was in the Collins Brothers. The Collins Brothers was also in there. So he told me a story that about how he used to come, him and Bam and Jay used to come to Mount Vernon all the time because his half-brother was down with the Collins Brothers. I was like, man, that's the missing link. I, I never knew that all while I was growing up. I knew I would hear the music. I would go up to the park as a little kid, and I would see, you know hear the breakbeats, and I'd see the big speakers and all that. But that's that's pretty much the missing link. So while hip hop was starting in the Bronx with those guys, it was also, um, you know, his half brother was doing it in Mount Vernon and with the Collins brothers. Um, and so it was emerging at the same time. So that put the spark in all of us creatively, because at that time, you know, you either wanted to be you wanted to be a DJ, you wanted to be a rapper, you wanted to right. be a break dancer, you know, and. But the um, DJ had a lot of power. So like oh, it yeah. was actually it was oh, yeah. cooler to be the DJ than anything else, which is so hard to believe yeah. today, but that's yeah. how it started. Yes. So back then the DJ was the center of everything because everybody else just came. You know, a rapper might maybe if they were on the top end, they had their own mic. But for the most part, you just showed up. The DJ had everything, had yeah. the equipment, the amps, the speakers, the records. So, so the DJ back then was not only the DJ playing the music, you had the whole set, you had the whole, you know, in, in, 
and you know the music is only as good as the whole set and what it's coming out of and then who's playing the beat so you were kind of like the coordinator um and then you had different um different you know mcs or rappers that would come some might be down with you some might just come and kind of get down and get on the mic or what have you but yeah the dj was the center of everything at that time so you were really starting basically as a as a dj so talk a little bit about your journey as a dj and then the formation of meeting heavy d and the formation of heavy d and the boys why don't you go into that? Yeah, so I started DJing around 13 years old. My mother took me, you know, I had begged and begged for, for DJ equipment. My mother took me, got me um, turntables and mixer, and I started DJing from 13. And I was like, every day I would come home, practice. And my dad actually worked at one of the teen centers. He was the director of the teen center in Yonkers. And then there were some other agencies in, um, in Yonkers. They would have me come there and play. They, I would spin. And I, back then I would get, I don't even know what it was, $25, $50, $75, whatever it was. But it was enough for me to, when I would do that, like every week or every two weeks, I would just go buy records and go buy more records and go buy more records. So it got to a point where I had all the records and I would just practice, practice, practice. And then a friend of mine, Craig Boogie, who um, who was a um, Mount Vernon High School basketball star of state champions, was my next door neighbor. And he introduced me to a guy called um, Everloving Kid Dust. He was in a, a, a crew in Mount Vernon. He's now known as uh, Brother Arthur. But back then he was in one of the more popular crews. And he was an older guy. He was older than me. He had kind of came up with the whole, you know, emergence of hip hop. But he had gone solo and he had started like hosting and he would host, you know, skating rink um, events. And, you know, uh, when working with him, we would be in the basement and he kind of showed me the ropes of preparing a show. And we would literally, you know, we would go from record to record. I would have like 19 records within the span of 10 minutes. I would have had switched like 19, 20 records because he might do a verse on this, this break beat, another verse, another verse here, another verse here. And that's what kind of taught me like uh, just showmanship as far as, you know, doing shows. And this is before I tried to make my own beats, before I even met Heavy, any of that stuff. I was working with him. So fast forward, a friend of mine had me do a house party in his basement. And that party, everybody was there. It was one of those parties where, like, it was like you had to be there. Everybody was talking about it. And then from there, my kind of, my star kind of, like, just took off. You know, I started getting calls to do all the parties. I started DJing um, at the high school, Mount Vernon High School, all the events. It got to the point where we kind of took over Mount Vernon, took over Westchester. We just started doing, it was like we were doing all the parties. Sometimes we were doing two, even three parties in a day. We were doing like an afternoon event, an early evening, night event. And then we would have somebody in another spot that might be set up with this, like on like a tape deck playing a little, you know, music before we got there. So we were really popular at the time. I was popular as a DJ. From that, Trouble T. Roy, God bless him, I was mutual friends with him. I think I was doing a wedding or something at the Mount Vernon Boys Club. And, I, you know, you would go and set up ahead of time. And I had set up my equipment. And he comes in the side door while I'm setting up. There's no, you know, nobody is two hours before the wedding or what have you. And he's like, man, you know, I want you to meet, you know, 
my man have you know he's trying to make a record you know this is eddie and like mount vernon was small everybody knew everybody so i knew who have was i just wasn't at the time i wasn't friends with him we weren't like hanging out every day but we knew of each other he was rapping basically at that time right yes he was yeah. rapping he was doing demos and yeah and troy introduced him to me because I was um I was pretty much the biggest DJ at the time in Westchester. I had kind of like, you know, grew up and started doing all the parties. And like you said, back then the DJ was the center of everything. So it was kind of like, hey, my friend wants to make a record. You know, I'm a I'm gonna bring him to, you know, Eddie F. He's, you know, probably, you know, can hook him up or do some beats or whatever. And that's that's how we became friends. And then right. when me and Happy met, we just clicked instantly like we became like you know it, it it was like we had known each other for like you know our whole childhood and we just started hanging out like every day trying to make trying to make demos and before that i had already connected with my brother i'll be sure who at the time was he was actually a rapper before he started singing so i'll be used to rap in the style of um slick rick and yep. Dana Dane. And he used to come with me to all the parties. We had met in high school and he used to come with all the parties and just, you know, either carry some records, just, you know, just he was just part of kind of like the crew. And, you know, he back then, you know, he wasn't the artist, I'll be sure. But he was still, you know, you know, light skinned, curly hair. He brought, he like, brought the girls. The girls yeah, was coming up. Yeah. girls yeah. you know he had the girls and it was just cool you know we were just hanging out having fun doing parties having people around that you that you vibe with and so to go back to the basement the demos Al had a four track and he had the cassette four track where we could do demos i had all the the records and in in the mics and then i had a friend who had a drum machine yeah a friend of mine kenny love he let me borrow his drum machine and so we started trying to, to, to make demos. And so mm. it was myself, I'll be sure, Heavy D. And then there was another um, one of our friends, Navelle Hodge, who I got introduced to by Al. He used to play keyboards. That was like kind of like the original nucleus of the original crew that would do demos. And that's how I got started with Heavy. And we and at the time, I was making demos with Heavy, but I was also making demos with um, with Al as well. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. So then Mr. Big Stuff was probably our first introduction to Heavy D and the Boys in 1986. It was a different type of sound for hip-hop at the time. And it, I always talk about hip-hop in sort of like, micro eras of hip hop, right? We have this the Sugar Hill gang, the 70s sort of hip hop. And then you have like your Curtis Blow and your Grandmaster Flash. And then you have your era, which was really like Run DMC had exploded. And um right. 
Houdini LL, and then 86 yep. is up, and labels are handing out deals. And so MCA is a major deal, a major label. A new edition was eventually signed to this label, but they had they had pretty much top-of-the-line artists, and they signed right. Andre Harrell, Uptown Records. And I'll never forget it because Uptown Records was – it was just something we weren't expecting. It was new, and I remember the video, everybody in the boardroom, and it was like Uptown kicking it, and – Right, right. Heavy right. D is like the first real major artist out of this energy. So talk about Mr. Big Stuff and then talk about just being a part of Uptown Records and Andre Harrell. Ironically, this is something that <laughs> now back then I didn't know what it was, but I'm very I'm very proud. I tell a lot of people this now. The first two singles that ever came out off of Uptown Records, which was Uptown's Kicking It and Mrs. Yep. Did Big Stuff. I did the drum beats for both of those songs. And I'm co-producer on both of those songs. So as we were doing demos in the basement, I would read all the records and, you know, and I would see, you know, okay, everybody's with this one company. All the big artists are with this one company. And it was Rush Rush. Magic, except the fat boy. Everybody (laughs) else was with, you know, Curtis Blow, Houdini, LL Cool J, Run DMC. uh, They all with Rush Management, except the fat boys. So, um, we went in the basement one day, you know, and it, it conversation came up. Where should we go to try and get a deal? Because we have made some demos. I'm like, man, we should go to we should go to Rush. And um, and then, you know, it was like, well, you know, where are they? Like, how do we get to them? And then, you know, it's like, well, let's look in the phone book. So we got the phone book. Um, we, we the number was in the phone book and, and so we called and we we kind of decided Al, Al B had the best, like, you know, telephone voice. He sounded the yeah. most professional. So we like, okay, we're going to let Al talk. And so right. we called. And Al says, yeah, you know, this is, you know, um, Al Brown, you know, we like to set up a meeting, you know, see with Russell Simmons to, you know, play our demo. And, um, and I want to say, I think, you know, we're all around the phone. What happened? What happened? What happened? He's like, man, you know. Either he said they don't take demos or they hung up the phone. I don't know what it was. But right. then it was like, Heavy says, man, we should go down there. <laughs> so, like, yeah. the funny thing is we were too we were too gung-ho and crazy to know that you couldn't just roll up and get a, a meeting with Russell Simmons. So we went down there. Um, we got the address. And back then, you didn't have smartphones. You didn't have navigation. You didn't have any of that. So we asked um, Troy's big brother, Gary, directions how do you get to you know this address he's like okay you take this highway you get off here you see 57th street you make a left yeah you, you know he was going into midtown manhattan right so and we in just, the heart of it exactly so we drove down there went to russell simmons office rolled up to the office we had already decided it was me Navelle, heavy and al but we had decided like heavy and al are going to be the spokespeople they're going to be in the front and um uh, so we rolled up to the office you know, receptionist asked us, you know, how may I help you? He's like, yeah, we're here for, you know, meet Russell Simmons. We want to play on my demo. And uh, they're like, do you, do you have a meeting? And uh, we're like, no, we just, you know, um, we just want to, you know, we got the address and we came, came down. At that time, Andre Harrell comes from the back. And I guess he was getting his messages or getting the facts or something from the receptionist. And so he's getting his message. He sees us and he says, hey, who is no? And he's like, and Heavy's like, you know, my name is, you know, Heavy D. This is my DJ Eddie F. We got our demo, blah, blah, blah. He goes right into, like, you know, character. And so Andre is like, 
where y'all from? And we like, you know, Mount Vernon. He's like, y'all came all the way down here from Mount Vernon? And I don't know if he knew where Mount Vernon was. He might have thought it was Mount Kisco. He just knew it was somewhere. It wasn't right. in the boroughs. It was somewhere far away. And um, we like, yeah. So he's like, all right, let me hear it. So we put the tape in. And at the time, it was a it was a demo called Goldfingers. It was like back then, everybody was kind of like doing DJ records. So it was a swing beat record. And it was me kind of doing scratches and, and heavy, right. like talking about me as a DJ. And um, Andre liked the beat. And he was like, okay, okay. You you Prince Monkey D Jr. And then your man, your man's Rick Rubin Jr. And he was talking about me, to, you know, the beat maker or whatever, what have right. you. And he's like, okay, this is what I need y'all to do. I need y'all to go back. Make a song, you know, tell tell a story, like come up with a concept. I need you to tell a story, come back with, you know. And so we like, okay. So then we run home, we make a demo, you know, heavy's telling a story, and I forget exactly what the demo was. And we finished the demo. So then now he's calling Andre. He, it, every day is like, man, did you get him? Did you speak to him? Some days it's like, yeah, I spoke to him. Well, what did he say? He said, man, well, we just talked and you know, some days he didn't get them. It was like weeks and weeks and weeks. It seemed like months passed every day. And then one day, Heavy says, man, Andre called me and he says he's getting a new label. He wants to sign us to his label. So we're like, man. Wow. So I guess at the time, now knowing the business, I guess Andre was leaving yeah. his uh gig at rush and he was starting his own you know deal and that was going to be the uptown records um deal so we're like what which he got on the strength of the success of def jam because he was working at def jam yes and so on the strength of def jam and what was happening all the other labels was like oh we got to get our guy so he actually got a sweeter deal than Russell Simmons could ever have gotten at MCA. I mean, they really laid out the red carpet for him because they wanted to put the resources behind and everybody wanted their own Def Jam. So you guys were first, like, you know, in this new entity. When he was, they were throwing a lot of money around. I I just remember it was just like, oh, okay, you guys got resources because Def Jam, they had no resources. Yeah, back then, Def Jam was indie. They were, I think they were about to do the deal with Columbia. I don't know if they had done it yet, but, um, and um, the mighty Gerald, uh, Gerald Busby was at MCA with Irving Azoff, and they had yep. everybody was at MCA. That's when they had New Edition, Bobby Brown, you know, Stephanie Mills, Jody Watley, you know, Ready for the World. Everybody yeah. was there. It's like it seemed like every hit record was there. They had like uh, they controlled black music at the time. Up from R&B, yes. they, they controlled it. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. And then and so when we found out that we were doing a deal with um it, the the label the parent company was mca that was even more exciting because me again i had all the records i was like man all the hit records is over here mca all you know the urbans they had so many you know songs so it was like we were being plugged into all the right people then andre introduced us to marley Mall and teddy riley we went to the rooftop to do a demo with teddy riley and i had a dx drum machine and i had the beat for mr big stuff but the way the dx drum machine was you could only put but so many sounds in there so i had all the the drum beat and i had replaced some of the sounds to change out the snare and the kick and teddy also had a dx so i had some other sounds but I had sound chips, but they couldn't fit in because I think you could only fit like 10 sounds at a time. So the right. other sounds were the Tom sound, the cowbell and rim shot. And then he also had the shaker. We basically connect the two DXs together. And then 
I was just a beat maker at the time. I was a DJ and a beat maker. I didn't really know what producing was. I see it on the records, but I didn't know what they did. So Teddy was actually like a producer, though. He had, you know, worked in, he had his own band. He had produced songs. So he connected my drum machine with his, and he arranged the song. He arranged the whole beat for Mr. Big Stuff. He put the, the, um, um, the, he took some of the sounds I had and he did the and put all that in there and made it into a, like an actual song structure. And then we did the demo for Mr. Big Stuff. In that moment, though, Teddy had done the show, which had been like that was one of yes. the yeah, biggest yeah. records yeah, yeah, in yeah, hip hop. Yeah. So <laughs> this dude was this dude yes. had done the show, but, but it wasn't it wasn't about a it wasn't a Teddy Raleigh production, but it was like he had done the right. show. He was formulating his sound right. as a producer at that time. Right. Yes. And so this is what I mean. So we met Andre Harrell, who, by the way, was from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was a hit right. group. Who we met? At Def how, many, how many times did you cut up AMPM? Thousands. <laughs> every 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 New York DJ AMPM. Yep. That was a joint. You had yep. to cut that back and forth. Yep. We had that MCA then introduced us to Marley Mall, who was down with Mr. Magic, who had who was the first person to have a, a hip hop rap show on radio. Then yep. we were um we were introduced to Teddy Riley, who had just done the show. So it's like we were like being put in all to mm-hmm. all like everything. Anybody who was hot who had done anything, it's like we were being introduced to those people via yeah. Andre. And he put us in and play with all of that. So met Teddy and Teddy, not only did he um, was he dope as a, you know, as a musician and producer, he also um, I remember he gave me he gave me like a Rhodes keyboard that, you know, he had two or three of them. He said, man, here, man, take this. He gave me the a Rhodes keyboard. He also wrote out for me song structure. This is how you, you know. You have a four-bar intro, you have an eight-bar pre-chorus, then you have the verse, then you have a bridge. Then he wrote the whole thing out on a piece mm-hmm. of paper. It could be four bars, it could be eight bars, it could be, and they had a whole thing, how you could structure a song. And that's kind of how I learned how to arrange a song format. And I, I tell Teddy this all the time to this day. People know Teddy for all the records that he makes. They know when they hear Teddy Riley, oh, Michael Jackson, uh, you know, Bobby Brown, Guy, all that. They know all of that. But the part they don't know about Teddy is that, see, a lot of producers, when they have a sound, they like want to like, you know, I don't want people to see what drum machine I'm using. I don't know what to know. They hide, they put tape on the keyboards. Teddy is the total opposite. Oh, man, I'm using this. You should get this. Yo, here, give you some sounds. You should buy this keyboard. Yo, let me show you. I'm using this program right here. And I told him this. Every time I talk to him, I say, man, when I talk about you, I'm going to tell the story nobody tells. He gave away and continues to give away so much of just information, of sounds, of what he's a guy that's like, yo, this is what I'm using. Because he knows he's confident in his own talent, his own ability, that he's going to do whatever he's going to do. If he gives you the sounds, keyboards, say, yo, you should get this, put you on to something, he's not threatened by or I gave them my sounds, or I gave them because it's going to be different. You know what I mean? And he did that for so many people, you know, as you know, now people know Pharrell and, you know, and then, you know, just Rodney Jerkins. And then through, through me, people that I gave sounds to, you know, the Dave Halls and the the Pete Rocks and then, you know, the Diddy. 
And then the people that those people gave things to. And so when you look at the family tree of Teddy Riley and all the people he influenced, the, the Neptunes, it's crazy. And in that moment, that was right before I Want Her, which was that song in yes. 87 that like, that was the whole beginning of New Jack Swing was that one yes. song, even though he had done the show. Yes. But I Want Her was such an international hit. And he was like 21, maybe like he was maybe yes. even 20. He was he was a kid, you know. And so yes. you're you're all I can. I just couldn't imagine being around all that. And you don't you really don't know. Like now we're older and we can look back. But, man, sometimes you could be in situations when you're young. That's why, you know, I always tell young people today, like you have to live in the moment because you really don't know, yes. like what you're around and surrounded with and the energy that's happening and things. And so a lot of times because of phones, people are so pre preoccupied with their phones, they don't capture the moment. And so for you, you know, I'm very familiar with y'all story, but I also know like Teddy Riley, Molly Mall. I mean, Molly was a legend. He was the radio guy too. Like he was the dude on the radio. So it was like you was around like the folks making things happen in hip hop. Absolutely. We had some success. I had just got my like condo in Jersey. I'm gonna skip forward a little bit. And I had like yep. the new, I had the white M3. I'll be sure we both got the M3 at the same time. He had the white M3. Teddy had the red M3. And I remember actually thinking. Like this time, Guy's album had just come out. I'll be sure's album was out. Heavy D and the Boys album was out. I was on tour or getting ready to go on tour with Bobby Brown, who had my prerogative and new edition. And I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, like, I feel like I'm a part of something that's real special. So then you guys put together, you Mr. Big Stuff comes out. Everybody's like, who was this group? This is like the fall of 86. I remember I was a freshman in college. And so like um it was it was all the wave um and then you guys come in 87 you come with your debut album which you know was it was a classic it's considered one of the best hip-hop debuts of all time and and that's hard to do sometimes when there's so many great artists that had these albums but then that changed your life so the album comes out like you said you're making money you, you got your, your your bmws and everybody else around you. And then you go into the creation of the second album. So talk a little bit right. about going from the first to the second, because that is always that like, man, that second album and hip hop was changing so much. There was so right. much happening, right. so much competition. Talk about first to second album, because everybody needs to elevate on that second album. Most people do not, but heavy D and the right. boys elevated. So talk about the creation of that, that second album, big time. First of all, we had Andre as a guy and a coach and that goes you know i can't overstate <laughs> the importance of having a uh, some andre harrell you know one of the most brilliant you know minds musical minds of our generation you know and especially like delivering hip-hop and r&b so he was coaching us the whole time and the other benefit that we had is we were kind we were on the cutting edge of an emerging sound which was you know one it was new jack swing and two it was Actually, three. One, New Jack Swing. Two, hip-hop. And then three, like, hip-hop and R&B just being mixed in general. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So a lot of, we were experimenting with a lot of things. Like, so we got our own thing from Teddy and Teddy, you know, was on fire. He was just making hits all over the place. You're being a little too humble because we got our own thing was like almost your first pop record because the record was bigger than Urban. That was like all of a sudden yes. top 40 stations are playing it. That That's a less a change in a uh, tax record, my friend, when that happened. So that, that must have been like when that came out. Of course, it was the whole New Jack swing sound, but we got our own thing was that was a massive yeah, yeah. record for y'all. Oh, yeah. I wasn't even talking about when the records came out. I was just okay. talking about making okay. making the album, not not yeah. they came out yet. <laughs> yeah. So making the album, we were just the sophomore jinx and all that stuff. We weren't thinking of that so much because we were thinking of being creative is what I was getting at. Right. We were thinking of, right. wow, this new sampling emerged so we were able to do things that we couldn't do on the last album because now there was more sampling time now you could you could kind of like mix this with you know let's let's have singing on a rap record let's just have you know let's have al sing a whole hook you know and it's really gonna be like an r&b song but we're gonna rap not not r&b traditional r&b is gonna be we're gonna make New Jack Swing R&B, like the type of R&B records that Teddy would have somebody singing. We're yeah. going to make that same thing and, and make a rap version and have let somebody sing on the hook. And that was kind of like the concept of songs like Somebody For Me and some of the other things. And then when we got it all packaged together, to your point, we got our own thing. The Kente Cloth, um, just the whole, the white, the white background. And we had, yeah. man... That when I'm thinking of it, man, I'm just getting excited. And then Andre again, Andre introduced us to Rosie Perez. Rosie Perez is a choreographer for We Got Our Own Thing. So my point being, we were being put in position with so many brilliant people, so many innovators. Like, let's just run back real quick. You know, Marley Mall, Teddy Riley, you know, Rosie Perez, you know, MCA records. Like, we're just constantly being put in front of people that were like, they were the cutting edge people at the top of their game. And Andre kept putting us with those people. Now, when you look back, you say, wow, you know, these were like iconic people at the time. We were just being put in position with these people. And, um, you know, of course, she did brilliant choreography. We got our own thing. And it was uh, and like you said, it was not only urban and hip hop. It started, you know, crossing pop. And I remember there was a time where, you know, there were like some like penguins in the video. People dressed up as penguins. And I remember there was a whole debate. I remember Andre and, and Heavy were going back and forth at one point. He was like, man, the penguins. He's like, I, I don't know, man. He's like, ah, man, that's whack, man. And then Andre's like, no, man, I'm telling you, that's going to make it art. That's going to make it art. That's it. And, it, and Andre was right. He, it was like it made it art. And it changed it from just being just an R&B song traditional R&B video, it kind of made it something else. It just took it to a different artistic value. And we didn't understand. And Andre was always, he was always thinking ahead. He was always on that cutting edge and um and bringing us to like just new, new energies. And also too, man, 
you know, I want to make sure that I shout out um, G Wiz. G Wiz, who was was one of the dancers of the group, yep. he was also he was the stylist. So all that with the kente cloth and all the stuff we did, the suits that we wore to the Soul Train Awards, and and just you know having the the um the new Jordans, whatever it was, what you saw on our covers, the Nike, the Nike suits, all that was G Wiz. G Wiz was like kind of like the in-house stylist. So when and then when you would see heavy, heavy looking fly, he had his suits and his suits would be dope and his had the right tie. Glenn was the guy that G Wiz was who heavy would lean on. All the time, Glenn, Glenn, am I right? Am I right? And he's like, Yeah, nah, nah, have let me come here for a second. Let me, all right, let me fix your collar. Let me figure it. And so, Glenn was not only a dancer in the group, he was also the original image consultant, the original stylist. He was the one that kept, and he was the one who would say, For example, there was a time when in DC, like, um, Mickey Mouse was real big in Go Go, and I remember Glenn was like the one who went to like Saks Fifth Avenue, got us the Mickey shirts. You know, and like he he just knew he would always know like he was the first one with like it's time to rock the ball heads. Like he just it's time to rock the beard. He, Glenn, I talk to Glenn now and I say, I say, gee whiz, what's up, man? I say, yo, everybody. I said, you was rocking the beard 15 years before everybody caught up. And he laughs at me all the time. I say, yo, you always been ahead of your time in terms of like fashion and style. I just want to shout him out because. That back then, they, you didn't get, there was no stylist. They, it was like everybody was just doing whatever they thought would contribute to make things dope. So a lot of that yeah. stuff, the polka dots, all that stuff, and we got our own thing, gee whiz. That was him like, yeah. yo, it's time to like, rock this. It's time to rock these shoes. And and he did a lot of that. He was the end. He, he's like, Dre would give him some money. He'd go shopping and come back with some fly, like fly gear. You know, it's interesting what you just said about, the, about Andre beforehand because – he taught that to Puff because that story you just told about, you know, not understanding and he had this vision that we got our own thing. The same thing happens between Puff and Big on Juicy. He didn't want to do it. Yes. He was like, I don't I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. But Ju- but Diddy was the visionary to be like, no, right. we got to do this. Trust me. This is it. And so um, right. you, I, you just made you just gave me the connection right there because, you know, Puff got everything from. Uh, Andre Harrell. I mean, all all the all yeah. the industry lessons he was getting firsthand. So second album, way bigger than the first album. So you guys must yes. have been on cloud nine at that point. Like, I mean, a sophomore album that's bigger than the first. He was number one. You had a debut right. number one on the album, which is like yeah. some kids from Mount Vernon, man. That that must have been amazing. So talk about that moment and what was it like to reach that success on the second album and how did it affect or change you? First, it put us on a, a, a national tour and um, and we had kind of now we had kind of solidified that, um, you know, for lack of a better term, I guess we, it's like almost like, OK, we know what we're doing now. We know what we're supposed to do. It kind of became like where we're starting to learn now. We're starting to learn what it is to become an artist and come into yourself as a group and know like what type of songs that we make, what type of songs we should be making. And it felt good. I mean, it just felt good just to go back to that moment. And, and we were, we were with Uptown records and we knew, you know, at the time now Uptown had heavy D and the boys had, I'll be sure had just put out, you know, guy. And it felt like we were changing. We were changing urban music. 
it felt like that you could for the first time you could actually feel it because you know guy's first album was so big it represented you know new york it represented harlem um al was i'll be sure was on fire and you could feel it from your friends you know all the people i went to school with people i went to high school with people that you just if you were just in new york and you were just moving around you know it's like you could tell it just felt like we were representing new york and we were representing the young sound of new york you know before that the sound had been a little bit older so it felt like you know teenagers and and young you know young adults are being represented that's what it felt like well you also battling the changing landscape of r&b you know like the standard i call them the hard bottom shoe crew of r&b music and then teddy really flipped it you know with new jack swing he just made it like you know you know maybe you don't have hard bottoms on you got sneakers on but you can dance a little bit differently and i always was intrigued by somebody for me because i just felt like when i first heard that song just the way that you put you put the song together the message of the song and just the energy of the song. It was really special. Talk about that particular song. Cause that, that was, you know, that's my favorite song on that album. We were trying to do something different. We wanted to have a song. We were basically, we were trying to make a song that was like the rap counterpart, uh, or at least I was as a producer. I don't know if heavy, I don't even know if I really had this whole conversation with heavy because we made the track first. So right. me and my Navelle were making the track and we wanted to make a song that was like it was like Keith Sweat or like, you know, some of these other songs, you know, just got paid or some of these songs that were out. But it was the rap version. So we kind of set out to do that with with somebody for me, like kind of use that sound and make it for, and use it for rap records. And at the time, funny story, we really at the beginning, we were thinking about. Bobby Brown was really hot. We knew we wanted somebody to sing on it. And we were thinking about maybe having Bobby. And then when we made the song and the track, and then we were like, oh, no, well, shoot, we just have, why don't we have Al? We should just have Al do it. Like, Keep him out burning. Just have him yeah. do it. Yeah. Right. Al came in and did the song. And I remember back then when you made songs, you came out of the studio, you could play it for people, you know, at the radio station we weren't playing it but like you know people at uptown and i remember there just being the excitement you know and jimmy love who shout out jimmy love who was you know vice president of um uptown and head of promotions and i remember him saying you know i played it for bls and they're ready to play it they getting ready, ready to go in it now they want us to bring them acetate tomorrow you know and it was just everything was exciting everything was was um it was just a really exciting feeling and i remember i remember comparing that feeling to like i said wow i said i wonder what it was like i guess this is what it was like at like say like a motown because when you just came in with hot records and people would be excited and it's like the company was the party like the company was you know you knew because of the culture of the people at uptown if they loved the song then they were like the staff of Uptown were kind of like the culture creators and the grassroots people. And they they were the people that kind of like defined, you know, and they were the reflection of the definition of what was hot. 
and what was fly and what was sexy. So if you had them, if you had the staff, you pretty much you were going to get, you know, you were going to get the street. You were going to get the colleges. You were going to get, you know, just the, you know, the, 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 the Bentleys, you know, as, as Andre would say, you were going to get the sexy energy. You know what I mean? And it, it's so, it was just an exciting time. You play. We made the song, and we and we tested it with by giving it to Andre and giving it to the staff. And one and Andre was like that parent that's at your ball game, that's like yelling louder than everybody, that's going yeah. crazy, that's like in the stands doing backflips, have a megaphone. He was that guy before the music business. So when you did something, when you did something that if it wasn't if it wasn't all the way right, he gave you the the coaching and he said okay this is what we need to do you need to work on this you need to do this but when you gave you something when you gave him something that was hot <sighs> he was like the number one hype man you know it was like blowing trumpets you know ringing bells shouting yelling it was like andre and you felt good you looked for that feeling you looked for that you know that cosign because you know when that happened it was on after that. It was it was like you knew it was gonna be a hit record, it was gonna be delivered. And we and we got that with somebody from me when we bought it in. He went crazy over the song and he was like, you know, and Jimmy co-signed it. Well, we got our own thing to somebody for me is a great one two punch for any artist to have, you know, songs like that. Um, I mean, girls they love me. That I mean yes. that album was just, you know, more bounced. There was just so much energy on that album. So you're you make that next step. You have this tremendous success. Now you're just on like super tours. And then unfortunately, you lose one of the people that started with you, Trouble T-Roy, terrible, tragic accident on tour. And that was right before your third album. And it must have been the high you were just talking about. That must have been the complete opposite low that to that because T-Roy was, had been with you from the from the gate he's the one that introduced you to heavy d so like losing him in that moment you know talk about the group and how you all just young guys like how did you absorb that and just figure out a way to move forward that was devastating to the group because not only troy was the connector of everybody because glenn lived with troy he was troy was heavy's best friend and troy was the one who had connected me with um heavy and then when we first went on the road when we used to have to share rooms troy and have shared a room and me and glenn shared a room and so they were even tighter because they they shared when we first started and also when there was something that heavy didn't want to do troy was always the person that would be like i'm gonna talk to him i'm gonna talk to him he was he was the he was the convincer he would get heavy to do stuff that he might not normally want to do and heavy would trust him and he knew troy had his back so he would if troy would say man we should do this he would just do it and so losing troy was like it was just devastating for the group we kind of and and also too troy was also for a group that was like you know bright colors and happy and singing and heavens dancing troy was also the the like the more grounded like you know in hip-hop he was more like he connected with all the like the street dudes the thugs he was that dude too so it was really we lost a lot with 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 troy all those things if you look at our album covers you can see living large yellow and red you can see big time we have on suits 
and then you that's when Troy passed. And then the next album cover, Peaceful Journey, is black. Yeah. And then the album after that is blue, is blue funk. We still kind of, you could see, and I I, I tried to describe how it felt, but when I put it in the terms of the album covers, that's how it felt. The the right after Troy, it was dark. Then it was like, we were kind of coming out of it, but it was still that blue. It wasn't colorful. And and we didn't get to kind of colorful again until Nothing But Love. But even Nothing But Love was more like, if you look at the transitions of the album, you see kids, you know, laughing, clowning on living large. Then you see like, okay, big time. We're growing up. We got on suits. We got some money. Then all of a sudden it's dark. It's black. And then it's blue. And then Nothing But Love, we got on suits. We got on leather jackets. And it's like, we've kind of come full circle but you could tell, like, we're growing up into grown men now, but but we've been through something. And you could see it, you know. And that's exactly how it felt, too. So your first single is Now That We Found Love, which is, again, another massive song similar to We Got Our Own Thing. Is It Good To You? Um, yep. it, it, was a, it was a quality album. So somehow you were able to, you know, usually that, that would, like, kill a project because it was just the creative part. It's just not there because of the grief. But somehow you were able to pull it out. And then you ended up continuing this level, this layer in your careers. And so when that album came out and you had that success and you ended up touring again, although you're down a member, you know, what was that like for you all? Just uh, seeing fame and success still happening, even when you lost uh, one of your, your folks. We had a huge support system and it was actually Heavy's mother who talked to Heavy and got him to finish the album and and really talk to him and said, you know, you need to go finish that album in remembrance of Troy. Then I myself, at the time, I was starting my own production company, Untouchables Entertainment, and Pete Rock and Sell Smooth, and we put out an EP first, but the first single off of their album was They Reminisce Over You, which is the dedication to Trouble T-Roy. And I'm really proud of that too, I talk to Glenn about that sometimes. I say, man, you know, I'm proud that, you know, that I was able to do something, you know, an executive producer project where the first single was dedicated to him and it became a classic song. And it's, yeah. it's dedicated. one of the greatest one of the greatest hip hop records ever made. Yeah. Yep. That's, and it's dedicated to Troy. Yeah, that's amazing. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. I mean, that's time, and the song is timeless. Yep. I don't care for a thousand years from now, that song will play and it'll stop you in your tracks. And, um, yep. and then Pete Rock was sort of obviously at that time, he was sort of, under you and you because he was on the backstory podcast about you know eight or nine episodes ago and you teach him production 
And then he becomes in that moment in hip hop, he becomes the new go-to guy and Pete Rock and CL Smooth had success, but then he was doing remixes for everybody. You started doing remixes for everybody uh, and you started expanding your horizon. So talk a little bit about how you got Untouchables and then, you know, Blue Funk was the next album and, you know, and then Heavy D dropped the boys and was just heavy d talk a little yep. bit about that part of your career like then you're sort of you know still down with the crew but you have this whole other thing happening and you're making all these amazing songs <laughs> and music away yep. from heavy d and the boys i was always a company guy i was a i was a group with the group but i always like you know andre started he was like a big brother slash father to us and I just always was a company guy. So at some point, you know, there was a little rift between Guy and 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 Andre and a guy wanted to get off the label and I remember, you know, feeling like, you know, I didn't produce R&B records at the time. I was just doing rap. That's kind of what pushed me into doing R&B because I just felt like, you know, I got to help like I can't let the ship go down. I got to try and figure this out and then I started, you know, producing R&B songs and I started trying to help where I could and I ended up we ended up doing songs for Horace Brown, Jeff Red, the remixes for the girls. But that's kind of right. pretty much how Untouchable started. And then from there, I ended up, you know, starting being hired to do like outside um, you know, mixes and remixes and we did um Johnny Gill Rub You the Right Way remix, which was a gold with, single. With CL, CL Smooth was on that on that remix, and a lot of people didn't know who CL Smooth yeah. was in that moment. Well, I'll tell you a story about that. I, we did that remix. We also did TLC, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. But I'll go back yep. to <laughs> to um, Johnny Gill, Rub You the Right Way. So when we did the mix, I was in the studio, and actually I came up with an idea and this used to happen all the time. We, like I said, we were just trying different things. And I said, man, we're doing Johnny Gill, Johnny Gill, new edition had just come off the any heartbreak. And they had just, there was that big comeback album with jam and Lewis. Johnny was doing his solo. They had just sold 2 million records. And I said, man, and I light bulb went off. This is an opportunity for me to like, kind of like market, like my, my rap group that's about to come out. So I call up CL Smooth and I say, man, okay, we're in the studio. We're doing a remix with Johnny Gill. I want you to write a rap. I said, it's the same speed as Big Daddy Kane Raw. It's that same speed. I said, write a rap. I said, say Johnny Gill's name, say your name in a rap, and then just get down to the studio. So he gets down to the studio and we do, he put the, we put the rap on there. And that actually was the first time that a rapper was put on as a feature on a remix where you did a remix of a song, changed all the music and put a rapper on the song that was not on the original song. That's the first time that was, that was ever done. Nowadays people do features because they want like people to co-sign. They want to rap. Now it's like, kind of like, Hey, I want, I want Drake to get on my song because I want Drake to co-sign. But back then it was the other way around. It was like the R and B artists had all the juice. The rappers were trying to get noticed. So Put CL Smooth on there. And actually, when we put out the Pete Rock and CL Smooth EP, I had them put a sticker on it, and it said Pete Rock and CL Smooth, and it said, from the Johnny Gill Rub You the White Way um, <laughs> remix on the right. actual sticker. Right. And that right. was my way of marketing my rap group that was about to come out. Um, nowadays, people do it for a different reason, but that was like the first feature remix. 
another thing that happened with you was so you were a part of Uptown, all the energy of Uptown, but then you became an A and R at LaFace as LaFace yep. was kind of forming. Bruh, I mean, that was a whole <laughs> nother monster in the 90s. So, like you was like the, the late 80s, early 90s with your thing, and then how did you end up with L.A. Reed and Babyface and LaFace? And then talk about some of the projects you A&R'd at that label. Once I started doing remixes with Untouchables, we kind of, everybody kind of wanted that sound, the New Jack Swing sound, the hip-hop R&B sound. And then after Johnny Gill Rub You The Right Way, and then we got the call for TLC. And TLC was actually having a problem that on Ain't Too Proud To Beg. Ain't Too Proud To Beg, it was doing great pop. But R&B radio was resisting the song. I had a conversation with L.A. Reid. He said, man, we're having a problem at urban radio. And it was because, you know, in the hook, if you remember Ain't Too Proud to Beg, the hook was shouting. It was like, ain't in the morning in the middle of the night. Ain't yeah. too proud to beg. L.A. comes to me and says, you know, we need some help with this song. We're having a problem at R&B radio. So I said, man, send it to And I was a fan. I was a fan of L.A. and Babyface. Jimmy Jam with Terry Lewis, Quincy Jones. So I was just honored to even be talking to L.A. Reid, and he's calling me, and I'm like, I'm like, bro, that was all royalty. Like, what you just said, that was royalty yeah. at that time. Yeah. So like, yeah. yes, the fact yes. that they got your so number, like, they call you, yeah. right? So like, okay, jump back for a second. Rub you the right way, which was produced by Jam and Lewis. I'm like, man, I'm remixing the Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis record, yeah. and then yeah. L.A. Reid's calling me, he wants to be. So I'm like, I'm like, man, these are my, you know, I'm, I'm fans of of all of these music makers these are icons in my mind so i'm like man i want to make you know la and babyface happy if i could make them happy so they send they send us the real we see the video first of all the video the girls are amazing they're amazing the video oh these girls are dope their their swag is crazy you know their flavor is crazy so then he tells me the problem so i took a part from the end of the song, which was an ad lib, where it's Chili singing, you know, ain't too proud to beg. And it's like an yeah. ad lib riff. I took that part, moved it into the hook, took the shouting out of the hook, put some keyboards and strings and melodies, and Navelle played the keys. And we basically transformed the hook into a melodic singing hook. Through that, the song became a, a number one, um, the remix became a number one R&B single. That was also a gold single. Again, so now we got two gold singles. We got Ruby the Right Way Remix Gold. We got the Angel Brother Bag. So after that, people start calling because Untouchable started becoming like known as like the fix it guys. And then we actually, I remember we took an ad out on Billboard. It was like something like, um, you know, come and get fixed or something, Untouchable. And then we showed like the projects we had done. So people started calling and we would take songs that were either traditional r&b songs or they didn't have a swing beat or they didn't have weren't mixed with hip-hop and we would start remixing those songs and and the funny thing is back then it was hard because people weren't singing over they weren't redoing the vocals whatever vocals was there because it was too expensive it would cost if it cost thirty thousand to do the record it cost another twenty thousand for them to sing the song over so there was no singing over there was no, you know, all the, there was no pro tools. So just pitching stuff and it was hard to pitch things. They would get grainy once you went a few notes down. So I would have to find something that was somewhere in the key range of that song that was somewhere in the tempo 
that sounded good with the melody of whatever was being sung that we could build around. And I would, as a DJ, I would find, so I would in my head be going through a hundred records and then I might have, okay, these seven songs I'm going to try. And then I would play the acapella, play the, you know, play like a loop with it. Okay. That sounded like it go with, then I put the beat behind it or whatever. And that's how we would construct remixes. But it was like, you had to find something that went with the song already the way it was sang. Was no singing over. That didn't happen until later, later, later on. Fast forward to Creep. So the next TLC album is coming out. And they have Creep. And L.A. calls me again. And he says, man, he says, you know, I have some people doing a remix, but, man, I don't know. It's not it. It's not right. So I said, send me all the mixes. And, and he said, we don't have we like we don't have much money because we did a bunch of mixes and none of them went. and i said what well, man how many mixes he said man we did seven remixes and and back then you do seven remixes that mean you passed out seven front ends you paid for studio time yeah. so yeah i just i just estimate you know you probably spent a hundred thousand dollars trying to get a remix before it even got to me so i'm like again i was a fan i love la and face I said, man, don't worry about it. Just send me, just send me the real, just pay for the studio time. I got you. He sends me the mixes. So I listened to the mixes. I'm not going to name the names, but everybody had tried a mix. But I heard it. They all was beats, beats, no melody, no music. And so I spoke back to LA. I said, I know what the problem is. I got you. I know what it is. And I thought the immediate problem was they're not musical. They all sound like beats, but nothing is musical. So... Again, I go through all the songs. I end up with DOS effects and nobody make the music with your mouth biz. And that beat kind of goes with creep, do the remix, put it all together, send it to LA, read. And he calls me and he's like, man, he's like, you nailed it. Like he's like, like he's excited. I'm excited. I love when he gets excited. excited. Yeah. Yep. So I'm hyped because he's hyped. And then he goes into, man, remember that thing we was talking about before about you doing, you know, A&R? He's like, man, we should make that happen. And so long story short, from that remix, he ends up offering me a gig to be vice president of A&R. And, um, I don't, you know, I don't know what people get paid now, but it was huge, a lot of money. And I'll, I'll put it like this. I did. And I say this to people all the time. You just never know what's going to happen. I did that remix for free i just said just pay for the studio time you know because my point is it's not always all about like the money and the check and what am i getting are you gonna pay me that remix i did for free end up turning into getting offered a gig for two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year because i did that mix for free and i i like to tell that story to people because i say you never know what's on the other side of you just doing something out of your heart just because you feel like you did. You feel like it's the thing to do, or you want to do something for somebody. Um, and, and you and got points. you got you got points on the music too, which is a whole nother thing. And two hundred fifty thousand yep. at that time is a million dollars now. Like that's, that's yes, that's a exactly. Lot yeah, exactly. And I didn't do it trying to get some. I just did it because I love LA. I love the energy, and I wanted to help. And LaFace was run 
like a great business even though there was a lot yeah. of hit music it was a great business and it, the budgets contingencies with weekly calls all that stuff i learned all that being at at the face it trained me out and it made me run my company better as a company and then i end up signing donnell jones to the face which then turned into you know donnell jones and where i want to be and you know what's up you know what's and, up with left eye on the on the uh yes. verse yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. my point is, and all of that came from, I just want to, you know, LA me called me, asked me for a favor. I do the favor and I'm happy to do the favor. Not looking for anything. Look what all that turned into. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then you go to Motown, you kind of do end up going to Motown to do the same thing. Right. Yep. One of the things about Motown, one of my, one of the greatest things about Motown was, being at Motown, first of all, coming full circle and being at Uptown, being at LaFace, and then getting to work at the legendary Motown, you know, it's just been a blessing. Working with TLC on Waterfalls video, being on the Universal lot, the whole staff of LaFace, we all out there on the Universal lot. I remember those days just being out there. I think it was one or two days. The day when Left Eye burned down the house. And turn on the CNN. cover of Bob. Yep. Was was C- yes. Yep. And CNN is covering the, the house being burnt down. And, and it's like an emergency staff meeting. We all get on the phone. It's the whole of face staff because it's like damage control. And we're like all on the phone. And they're like talking about, you know, what to say, what not to say. If people ask you, you know. And then them coming full circle and being on the vibe cover with fire suits on, and then they went on to sell 10 million albums. That was a wild time, man. That's wild. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say, they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. So you say, you saying it, and it's like, in the moment, it had to be so chaotic. This Man. your life. It was so much stuff coming yep. at you. So many moments. Like I'm, I'm sure you had a over uh, sensory overload in of emotions during that era. So I remember our dancers. Fatima Robinson was the choreographer. Legendary. Um, yes, legend. And Janet Jackson wanted to work with her. And I remember we all going to Janet's house. This is in the '90s. We all go in there and they're about to work with her and work on her stuff. And I think I want to say it's like Josie and uh, I'm not sure if it was Big Les, but it was a bunch of, you know, all the all the, you know, the, the girls that that um, danced with us, danced with Bobby. They would remember the time and all that stuff. And I remember I want to say that it was Josie, but I'm not sure. But one of them introduced Janet to Tupac. And then that whole Janet Tupac connection became the poetic justice thing. Like, and I remember that 
and the significance of me even telling that story is just to say it was just a special time. It's like so when I look back now and I think about just Pac and then Pac and Janet and then Michael Jackson and Babyface, there's just so many just special moments. It's and it's like it's not one, it's not two, it's not ten, it's fifty, it's a hundred. If I if I write them down. I would be able to be like, man, but it's just sometimes I think about this stuff and I just really feel blessed to have to just have been a part of all of these like great moments with great people, you know, in living color and being on the in living color set and put and performing the song that we did for in living color, you know, redoing the theme on for the third season, opening up and then having Keenan introduce the newest members of the cast, which one of them was J-Lo, another one of them was Jamie Foxx. You know what I mean? And you think, now you think about yes, these, so. like, superstars, and you say, wow, man, I remember, I remember the first day when we did this show, and Rosie's like, hey, guys, I want to introduce you to Jennifer, the new fly girl. You know what I mean? It's like memories like that, and then I just remember, you know, just a lot of, a lot of like, special times. Well, Eddie, man, I just want to thank you for uh, getting on the Backstory Podcast as we celebrate Hip Hop 50. And, you know, you were just someone who's I was, you know, glad that this worked out because you were someone that had been in the mix of so many different points in music history, not just hip hop. And uh, I appreciate you sharing these stories. And, um, man, it's just just an honor to have you on. And uh, what you working on now? Talk to everybody about what's happening with Eddie F right now. What I'm doing now is I'm actually doing I have a a platform and this is like kind of what this is behind me. Eddie F presents. And when I look at my career, like some of the remixes and some of those things and a lot of the artists that we've written songs for either myself or my company writers that I either, you know, managed or, or, or worked with. It's a lot of firsts, a lot of first singles. It's a lot of like, you know, whether it's Brownstone or, or it's, it's Destiny's Child. We wrote the first single, Mary Brown, shout out Mary Brown, incredible writer, you know, a lot of firsts, a lot of helping people get off the ground. You know, Donnell Jones, you know what's up. The first, you know, first singles. Time after time, the story, what I told you about LC and, and Johnny Gill and, um, and, and you know, hosts of others um, did, you know, first on Mariah's second album and her, and her third album. The common thread is I help a lot of artists getting off the ground. That's what I see, like, just being a producer, a talent. But I've also been a coach and I've been able to help like identify talent and then help people like kind of like define their talent. And I've done that with a lot of my people. So now what I want to do in the digital age where a lot of people are just looking at, you know, um, what's your YouTube? What's your streams? What's your this? You know, it's a lot of analytics and a lot of I feel like a lot of artists that are superstars today. If it was up to analytics, they may have not been discovered. They like brilliant talent, but it's like a lot of artists had to be developed over time. I mean, like, you know, look at Usher, look at Donnell Jones, look at Destiny's Child. They have a deal and then did that deal got, you know, dropped and they got a new deal. And then that turned into Beyonce and, you know, and then, you know, Jay-Z was on priority and then with the Def Jam. And then, you know, my point is it doesn't just a lot of artists need like needed support or they needed a system to help so what eddie f presents is about is me partnering with artists 
older artists, classic artists, but also new artists, and just putting out quality music. And then me taking the experience that I've had in the business and just putting at least some of those resources behind a song or a project to get the project out there, at least be able to have people here. And it's just going to be singles and quality music. And we're just going to um, have fun with it. And I, and, and I kind of also liken it to back in the days when I first started DJing, we used to do mixtapes and, um, and literal tapes of somebody in school could rap. Hey, my friend could rap. And yo, okay, come by the house. And they would come by the house. We put on some break beats. We record them rapping and it would either be great or it'd be a dud. Didn't matter. We just were having fun. We were just being creative. And if it was great, you gave it to somebody, somebody in school got it. They made a copy. Oh man, I heard that tape. And then next thing you know, that tape became viral. People made copies, copies, copies. And then it's kind of the same concept, but the record version of it. I go in the studio with people that, you know, I feel have talent, whether Mm -hmm. they've had talent in the past or new, we make something that we think is a quality song. We make the best song. We put it out all different genres, all different types and styles of music, rap, R&B, Afro beats. And then it's going to be Eddie F presents and I'll, I'll be, you know, a, a co-artist with the artists. And hopefully, you know, my feeling is if I could do that consistently over time, some of those songs will become, you know, special songs will become, you know, hit songs and they will help give, you know, artists a platform and then I also get to do what I love to do, which is just continually put out um, quality music. And right now I have a song with um, with Miss Jones from New York. It's called Calling All Ladies. And same thing. I've known Miss Jones for a long time. I've known her for um, at least 15, 20 years. And she was on. She was actually on Motown when I was at Motown. Um, yep. We lost contact. I hadn't talked to her in like 10, 10 years or so. But what I remember about Miss Jones is that when I first met her, I said, you know, I've been watching your songs. I've been watching. And she just always had a great energy and she had some great songs. And I would say to her, man, I used to see you and I'd be like, you could have been like an uptown artist. Like you could have been. And she and she that is sugar, from, that, that Sugar Hill hook. Yes. Yes. Yeah. She did. Yeah, Sugar yeah. Hill AD. Yeah. Then she had the Way I Want to Be. Where I Want to Be, was boy. Like, yeah. Yo, I was like, you right in the lane. You 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 like an uptown artist, but she just was in a different system. So yep. I always felt like she had that spark, had that energy. So now, you know, years later comes full circle. We get to do a song together. And I just always thought that, you know, she was a great singer. And then she also now, you know, has other talents. Now she, you know, she has has a, a morning show in New York. And she's always had that gift of um, that personality. So that's one of, you know, I just, we just put a song out like maybe a month and a half ago now. And we're getting like very good response from it. We, we, we got, you know, some, you know, play in, in markets around the country, mix shows, you know, and, and all the other stuff. And um, we're going to continue to do stuff like that. Well, man, listen, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing. We're going to look out for, I can't wait to hear some of the magic that happens uh, with, with many of these artists that you're going to be working with. And, you know, just appreciate your time and energy today. And thank you for sharing those stories. What a what a legacy of a career that you continue to have. And uh, we're thankful to have you on the backstory. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, the story of Eazy-E and NWA, part one 
the foundation of the legacy. The energy was crazy. It was just about fun. It was just free, fun. Imagine it's just us in the studio. We're paying for the shit ourselves. Cause easy, well, Easy's paying for it. And we're just sitting there just creating. The Backstory Podcast with Colby Kolb is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production, hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Colby Kolb, edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC, on Instagram, Get the Backstory. For sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast. <laughs>